just like most episodes, this one contains strong language. Who are Kenyatta and Jack? We're just friends who are Gen Xers, former Air Force brats, parents, taxpayers, and citizens of the Earth. And we're here to save it one podcast at a time. Take a look. It's in a book, The Reading Rainbow. And we're on it, here to once again serve you all the things you didn't know you needed to know. It is I, Kenyatta, and with me as always is Jack, and we're here to save the world. Jack, how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. It's a, a lovely day here in the central portion of Oklahoma. Indeed. Indeed. I bet it is. And it is it's also pretty good over here on the on the East Coast. The the last of Hurricane Ian has pretty much dissipated, so you know. Did you guys out. get a ton of rain on that when it we, went over you? I mean, was it really bad or was it just like a bad sort of rainstorm? It is like a bad rainstorm, heavy winds, and that was the better part of Friday. But by Saturday morning, the rest of it had pretty much dissipated, gone out to sea, et cetera, et cetera. So that's we're, good. Yeah, we got like little a little bit of it, so it wasn't bad. But shout out to everybody in Florida. Thoughts going out to you guys. That's that's something else going on down there right now. Huh? Yeah, Florida is its own. Someone could start a Florida podcast <laughs> just for Florida, but yeah, dealing with the storm. Um, definitely are we're sending good vibes your way, knowing that <laughs> the the west side of Florida really really got hit hard. So mm-hmm. definitely good... thinking of you guys. Not that thinking about you does anything, but <laughs> Well, you know. It helps, I guess, on some particular level, but yeah, it's well, really for everybody that got in the path of this one, because this was a nasty one. Yep. This is a nasty one. And for us to be so far into hurricane season, we've only got like a month to go left and have one this big come this late in the season is unusual. So shout out yeah. to everybody cleaning up and putting it back together after this. So, oh boy. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Definitely, definitely. Well, Kenetta, would you like to... Uh... We completely have now, I believe, lost track of who goes first on WTF, so I don't know if it really matters anymore. But would would you like to share with us your WTF? Certainly, certainly. Um, this happened uh, right here in uh, my nesting area of the Commonwealth of Virginia last week after our beloved Governor Glenn Youngkin uh, recommended a, um, uh, I won't say an amendment, but a, um, a reversal of protections for transgender and LGBT uh, young folk. Um, what he proposed was that children or students, put it that way, would have to get their parents to sign off whether or not they can be addressed by their preferred pronoun or by their preferred name in class. Basically, what Youngkin's um, guidelines state is that students are required to use the restrooms, pronouns, and the names that that were given to them based on official school records, which as we know is usually based off your birth certificate. And the guidelines also limit sports teams to gender assigned at birth, and it, it tightens parental notification requirements, which again means these kids will have to bring in parental uh, approval for them to be allowed to be referred to right. as the pronouns and the names that they want to in class. As a result, uh, roughly over a thousand kids across a hundred high schools uh, in Virginia last week walked out in protest yeah. of this. And it was organized uh, by an organization called Pride Liberation Project, a youth-led LGBTQ advocacy nonprofit. And um, yeah, kids walked out. It was about a half hour across the board, you know, regardless of what school they were at. And they were talking about pretty much your opposition to this. And again, what this proposal is doing is taking the decision out of these young people's hands. 
and, you know, pretty much letting them know, you know, what you want doesn't matter. Your parents have to agree with it. And I would hope, you know, if this ends up, you know, getting on the books as law, I would hope that these kids' parents are supportive enough to allow them. Right. To be, you know, referred to as they see fit. But unfortunately, as we know, it doesn't always work like that for a lot of these these kids at home. But, you know, the issue is basically the fact that he's got this policy. He's written up this policy to begin with. So. Right, right. The <clears throat> See, this actually, as just a regular cisgendered old white dude who just turned 50. 50. That law actually would have affected me because nowhere on my birth certificate does the name Jack appear. My name is John, but my dad was a John, but I'm not a junior. My mom did not want to call me by my early 1900s middle name, which we will not mention. So my mom's favorite president <laughs> was JFK. And what did JFK go by, by all of his friends and family? Jack. And my mom said, or thought, you know, if Jack is good enough for JFK, it's good enough for my son. So every year I went to school, my mom or dad would have had to have signed off on me being called Jack. Right? Mm -hmm. It's the exact same thing because it says if you don't go by the name on your birth certificate. My daughter, Emily, most of her friends call her M. Would we have had to have signed off on her being called M by a teacher? Or is M short enough of Emily that it would have been okay? See, and those are those kinds of, I, once again, I think it goes back to what we were talking about, the law of unintended consequences, because now, even though this policy is out there, so they think for a particular reason, and really, in my opinion, there's no reason for this. This is, no. this is it's, it's just duty. Like, why can't these, these kids be referred to as, as they want to be referred to while they are in school? They spend most of the day in school. Right. Why can they not be referred to with the pronouns and the names that they feel comfortable with that now you're requiring parents to sign off on it? It's just, it's nasty to me because as much props as I give the teaching profession, unfortunately we've seen instances where teachers have been less than decent, mm -hmm. you know, cause video lives forever. And I can see, I can see some butthole teacher getting their jollies off of, you know, misgendering or dead naming a right. student in their class. I can, I, I hate to, I hate to say that, but I can see it coming. I can see that one butthole teacher being that one. Well, I have to call you mm -hmm. by the name on your birth certificate, Robert, even though, you know, she, you know, she might go by Megan now, but you got a teacher up there smirking and grinning right. and calling Robert every chance he gets, you know what I mean? I, yeah. I hate the idea yeah. Of, of I hate it. I hate the idea of, of taking that choice out of these kids' hands like that. Like they're not capable enough of knowing who they are. What? Right. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Well, you know, for a group of people that complain and always call their political enemy, enemies groomers and sex is bad, they sure spend a lot of time concerned with people's genitals. They really do. And and, and to be clear, when we talk about, you know sexual orientation the idea of what genitals you have is the least of it honestly right. uh, uh, um, uh, that's that's too much to get into because i'll be i'll be over on uh, another track all day so i won't but <laughs> yes let's let's calm you down yes <laughs> <laughs> and move on maybe to my wtf that hopefully let's, has a little bit of comedy to it hopefully let's do even that. though it's serious yes let's do that all right alumnus of the podcast marjorie taylor green in a speech a couple of weeks ago was complaining about all of the green energy parts of the build back better plan specifically solar power and stuff to allow uh, people to get solar power on their homes and make it easier she was complaining that she doesn't who wants to live that way she likes it when it's dark for a house to be able to have lights on she or to be able to cook or do things like that because apparently marjorie taylor green doesn't know that batteries are a thing that there are multiple millions of people in this country that have solar power houses 
that have lights when it's dark. It, and if you switch your whole house to LED, it doesn't really affect the batteries that much when you're running it. It's the big appliances that, you know, draw the most off these batteries. But she forgot batteries are a thing that exists. And that was just your house. And I'm not sure which is worse. And this will sort of come up twice because there's a part B to this. She's literally, if you go and Google this video, she has this smug look on her face as if she's making one of the most intelligent statements ever made by humanity. For her it is. Well, <laughs> but, but then the audience applauded and cheered her afterwards. So I'm not sure which is worse. Her thinking that's a brilliant statement or the audience thinking it's a brilliant statement <laughs> and clapping because apparently the audience forgot batteries are a thing. Mm. And then like a week later, she made another speech and she was talking about how Canada Air is going to buy electric uh, jets or airplanes. And she couldn't fathom how electric would work. First of all, electric planes are a thing also. Hmm. And she comes out with this, you know, I imagine in my head this thing back when, you know, they had people that were forced to row boats, you know, and somebody's standing there. And that's how I envision these planes are going to work. And then once again, thinking she's making this intelligent conversation and the audience cheers again. <laughs> how, how do you not know that batteries exist? I can maybe see not under knowing that electric planes exist because when you think of electric vehicles, you tend to think of cars mm -hmm. and you may not under you know, get that. Yes, there have been electric planes. Somebody made a solar plane and flew around the world, you know, mm -hmm. but what is she going to do when she finds out that we have rovers on Mars that work with solar panels, you know? Because really, in you know, if we're talking about Mars, really solar panels are the most ideal power source to have. Because it's not like you can run replacement batteries up there. <laughs> right. Anytime they need it, you know. <laughs> yeah. Is, is she aware that a good, well, yeah, a good chunk of our satellites use solar power and batteries? That would Once again, probably not. You know, that would require her to understand, you know, orbit and the fact that occasionally the satellites do, you know, come around and those solar panels adjust and aim towards the sun so they can store up energy for when they're yeah. not near the sun. But, you know, that's too much. That's too yeah. much. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, learn how the world works. Make I, I'm starting. I used to think, you know, the, the Constitution says you can't have like a religious test to run for office. But I'm really starting to think that maybe we should have a general knowledge test. Something. And if you if you score, say, below 75%, you can't run for office. Maybe mm -hmm. that would help with some of this. You could throw in science stuff, math, you know, constitution. You literally just have to be of a certain age and have money. That's Pretty really much. it. Or be, it'd be a citizen. That's that's really all there is to it. That's the qualifications to be able to run for public freaking office. You make decisions for the rest of us that you're so stupid you can't figure the world out. That's the sad thing. But anyway, good old Marjorie Taylor Greene. I wish her luck on her divorce. Uh, hopefully her husband doesn't, I guess, clean her out too much. But mm. I guess apparently when you're not on any committees, when you're a representative, you have plenty of time to cheat with your trainer. Indeed. And uh, with that, <laughs> I just, I, I understand, you know, she ran in a pose when she won. Really, I think there should be a law for that, too. Just because someone runs unopposed, it shouldn't be automatic, especially when it's a dip dip like this. Like, I, I don't know offhand you know, how much of the actual vote she got because obviously what she didn't get just meant people didn't vote. So I'd just be curious to find out out of the registered voters in her jurisdiction, how many of those people actually voted that year? Like how, how, how many of those people actually believed 
what she was trying to sell. I just, and then I like yeah. to have a talk with every single one of them. Look what yeah. she did. Hmm? Yeah, I agree. You know, ge gerrymandering has made it to where there will be a district. You know, this is a Republican district. This is a Democrat district. Mm -hmm. And so people run unopposed. It happens here in Oklahoma for the state legislature all of the time. Mm -hmm. And I just feel, I don't care who the unopposed person is. Someone should always run against that person. You should have to work to be, you know, a legislature a legislator you should not have it so simple that if you're running unopposed you don't have to do door knocking yeah i mean you, you should have to go and meet your constituents or something. that word that i just couldn't say properly <laughs> and and if it, if the results come back and we find out that less than let's say half of the registered voters in that county or that district didn't vote then yeah no we're just gonna hold off we're gonna we're gonna give it six months and see if someone else wants to step up because people just don't really like you they're just voting because you're here yeah. it shouldn't be a default it shouldn't it, not for uh just uh and then you know she gets in and the rest of the country has to deal with her until whenever yeah it, it's it makes me gag it makes me gag yeah, make that person work for re-election because, first of all, when you run unopposed, you already are going to have coffers for your for the campaign. Sure. And the thing about campaigns is you don't have to use all of that money for that particular campaign and then, say, give the money back to donors. Uh -uh. Whatever's left over, you just keep until the next time you run for office. Uh -huh. So when someone runs unopposed, <laughs> you're just basically helping them run for office the next time. And if you have two or three times where you're running unopposed, but you're still getting donations, that fourth time, if you aren't running unopposed, now you have this big bank account. And we all know commercials cost money. <laughs> and, you know, and even though I don't think we mentioned it on any episode, but unfortunately she managed to wiggle her way out of, you know, the little bit of trouble that she was in that may have barred her, barred her from running again. Now she's, she's in the free and clear. So most likely she's going to run again. And, Help and help them. Yep, 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 yep. Ironically enough, what we are talking about here ties in with our main topic of conversation, part two of talking about the U.S. Constitution. Indeed, indeed. So, our uh, previous episode, we covered the first three articles of the Constitution. So we're going to wrap it up here in the second half and, and get into some detail about the back half of the Constitution, that, that sacred document. Yes, we are, we are going to do that. But before we do, we're going to stop and have just a minute for our sponsor of today's episode. Hey, listening friends, Jack here. And I would like to tell you about the sponsor of today's episode. And that sponsor is Atlas. Atlas is a branding, web development, and content marketing agency. As a business owner, your day-to-day -day is uncharted enough. From branding and web design to content marketing, Atlas will help you navigate this digital terrain with ease. In today's world, social media is a great tool. However, you need to have a concrete, focused plan on how to use it. And that's where Atlas comes in. Atlas can help you navigate this modern digital world. And on top of that, Atlas can also help you with traditional means of marketing. So if you would like to book your free consultation, please visit atlasokc.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-O-K-C.com for your free consultation. And we're back. We hope you enjoyed that lovely message from our sponsor. Indeed, indeed. So and we're so thrilled to be involved with them. All the all the support that we can get from you listening friends and from everywhere else, we are eternally grateful. So yes. having said that, we're gonna dive into our main topic for this episode. And to start off, we're gonna pick up at Article Four of the Constitution. Which, just to summarize off the top, that particular article has to do with states' rights. Yay! We all know 
how delightful states' rights are, as we've seen, you know, in great, great detail in the past year and change how how states choose to to impose their laws upon their citizenry. Mm. But be it as it may, it's in the Constitution, so I, I guess we got to go with it. Hmm. Yes, yes. What Article 4 does, basically, it addresses the roles and responsibilities of the states. And because this document was written at the time that it was, right after, or excuse me, right before the Civil War, the states had, you know, great individual power. So this was coming along at a particular time where they wanted to make it clear what they could and could not do or should do with respect to themselves and their citizenry and others. So Article 4 has four sections. And the first section dives into uh, the idea that all states are required to respect and accept each other's public acts, records, and judicial proceedings. And it also gives Congress the authority to create general legislation to describe how the public acts, records, and judicial proceedings are honored across state lines. Hmm. Now, there's a little blurb here in uh, the piece of research I'm reading from that goes in a little bit more detail about what Section 1 was designed to resolve. And it was apparently a vital provision because of the uh, discord among the states under the original Articles of Confederation. And let's just say that was just the prequel, I guess you could say, to... Uh, the Constitution. But the disunity was especially notable during the age, early stages of the Revolutionary War. We know what that was. Before this point, each state would print money, operate under forms of government contrary to one another, and have different cultures and economics. The Union of States would only work if the states cooperated under the guiding hand of a centralized government, specifically the legislative branch. So, that was the significance of Section 1. Section 2 goes into uh, the guarantee that citizens would have the same privileges and immunities in every state. And it promised individual citizens the same basic rights and freedoms as they travel to other states. Which, I mean, basically means if you can do this in Georgia, you can do this in Mississippi, so to speak. Correct. Correct. And it also prevented states from discriminating against people from other states, which is which is interesting. But I won't I won't go there. That that <laughs> portion, I think, is frequently ignored. Uh, yeah. 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 Anyway, uh, Section two, clause two is an extradition provision for states requiring a criminal to be returned from the state to which they fled to the jurisdiction of the state where they committed their crimes. The state where the person fled to could not refuse to give up the criminal. And this ended up being a necessary provision to maintain a level of law and order in an otherwise free society. While that's technically still true, I've heard, you know, I was heavy in the true crime uh, shows and documentaries at some point, and it's amazing the kind of laws that the states have managed to put in place to even muddle the waters on this one. Okay, yeah, we're required to give, you know, Joe Bob back because he committed murder in Florida, but now he's all the way over here in Washington and he did something in Washington. So we're going to hold him and try him in Washington and we'll give him back to Florida when we fit. It's a whole muddy yeah. thing. Who, who gets to take him to trial first? Right. There have been cases where you see somebody, he goes to trial and... Washington, like you said, they finish everything, gets punished, you know, sentenced to say 10 years in prison. Mm -hmm. But before you can do your prison in Washington, now we're going to ship you to Florida so you can be tried there. And I believe what generally happens is whichever is the longest sentence or the harsher one is the one they do first. Mm, okay. So can you imagine having to do like you do 15 years in Florida and you're like, oh, finally I'm done. Oh, no, you're not. Got to go do 10 years in another state. So, yeah, yeah, you definitely. Can you imagine how, though, crazy the world would be if all you could do to avoid facing your crime is just move to Texas <laughs> or, you know, whatever the state is? <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> that would be that would be messy. But unfortunately, then that also, you know, led to 
that is the con the part of the Constitution that um, allowed Southern slave owners to chase escaped slaves in Northern states. So mm -hmm. while it is necessary to allow big criminals, you know, to get sent to the state they committed the crime, it was also, I believe, abused in that instance. And I'm using abused because I can't think of a harsher word at the moment. No, it's it's accurate, and it, it's and she you say that because that is exactly what clause three of uh, section two refers to is the fugitive slave clause, and it does it did exactly that prohibiting slaves from escaping their servitude by fleeing but, to another state, even if the state they fled to prohibits slavery. Hmm. Yeah, and also real quick, I would like to point out that in Article Four, Section Two, the second sentence. A person charged in any state with treason, felony, or other crime. So there it is. The fifth time treason is mentioned in the Constitution mm -hmm. as a specific crime. And, even, you know, I was in an argument, or this person on Facebook, I was posting about the treason thing. And his argument was that, no, not they, they were not people that fought in the Revolutionary War. They were, it was a different group of people that wrote the Constitution. And that I was thinking of the Articles of Confederation. One, don't tell me what I'm thinking about in my head. You're not in there. I know what was in there. Besides, it's a scary place to be. Two, yes, I understand that 100% of the people that were writing the Constitution were not members of the Continental Congress or fought or did any, you know, military leaders during the Revolutionary War. I understand that. You know, it was, in a lot of cases, children of people that were members of the Constitutional Congress, but it was the children, you know, that were uh, people that at the time were the, the moneyed class and their parents in some way would have been involved at the Revolutionary War. So at most, it is people that are one generation away from having commit treason from the British crown. And that was my point, mm -hmm. that people that committed treason, the children of people that committed treason, in the Constitution, thought so much against treason that it's specifically mentioned a number of times in the Constitution, and it's the only crime really mentioned by name. True. And here we are now, Article 4, and treason is specifically mentioned again. Again, yes. And so his point basically was that you're because... Thinking, you're thinking of the other thing. Yeah, you're thinking of the Articles of Confederation. No, I'm not. Orange Jesus, Jesus worshiper. <laughs> but two, it was almost like he was arguing that these assholes that want to go and have their 1776 moment, they're cool with it because the people that wrote the Constitution weren't part of, all of them weren't part of the Revolutionary War. And then also, because when Washington went to the Whiskey Rebellion, it that was about taxes on alcohol. It wasn't really a rebellion of people trying to overthrow the government. True. The definition of treason says if you're taking up arms against the U.S. government, you're committing treason. Yeah. So basically, <laughs> it sounds like he's arguing for people to commit treason. The cool thing is I screenshot it, and he's a guy that ran for office a couple years ago. So when he runs again, I'm going to send it to his opponent. So maybe in a commercial they could put on there that he's apparently for treason. This message has been approved by. <laughs> yeah. This dude is for treason. <laughs> Let anyway. me. Um, I'm I done. <laughs> I want to take a minute, though, uh, to read the actual text of the third, the third clause of Section 2. Because it's interesting how it's phrased in the actual document as opposed to how it's been summarized. Um, no person held to service or labor in one state under the laws, therefore, escaping into another, shall, in consequence of any law or regulation therein, be discharged from such service or labor, but shall be delivered upon claim of the party to whom such service or labor may be due. That is the most political ease phrase I think I have read thus far and how how they're basically saying, look, you know, we brought y'all over to work for us and we're going to get with owed. 
So I don't think you're going to run off and go hide in, you know, Missouri just because. We're going to find you. We're going to drag you right on back to Georgia where you belong because you owe us. What? Yeah. You ain't you. You don't get to hang out in Massachusetts. No, 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 no Boston for you. Come on back down to the yeah. swamps of Georgia because you owe us. So that's clause three. I've all I've, I've I've in my research for these these episodes as I glazed, you know, glazed over uh, <laughs> as I read over them. And that one caught me. And I'm like, I know it was in there, but I wasn't sure how they phrased it. And it's just so it's so sterile and so clean. You know, the original phrasing, which yeah. basically they're saying it doesn't matter if we bought you. Basically, they're right. saying they're almost making it sound like. Well, you volunteer for this, so don't run off. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, there's, yeah. there's no, there's no nothing to that. But as we all know, the Thirteenth Amendment, which was passed in 1865, rendered that clause obsolete by abolishing yes. slavery in any form of in, involuntary servitude, with the only exception being the case of punishment for a convicted criminal. And that's a whole different podcast unto itself. Yes, so. <laughs> yes. I, I do have a question for you, and it's something that you may or may not know the answer to. I don't know. So, when people did escape uh, being a slave, and they mm-hmm. would go through the Underground Railroad to mm-hmm. go north, I know a lot, of, a lot of people did stop in northern states, like New Hampshire or Massachusetts or whatever, Mm-hmm. But do you know if the Underground Railroad went all the way to Canada, which it, I, you know, was still a British province, and I understand that they didn't eliminate slavery. We did an episode on uh, William Wilberforce, who led that charge over in England. Mm-hmm. But because that would have been England, if you were able to escape to Canada, you couldn't necessarily be, you know, because you're in a different country. So do you know if if the Underground Railroad went all the way to Canada, or is this something that maybe we need to research and discuss later? Well, it's it's interesting you say that, because I think it, it would definitely be something to be addressed in a future episode. But I want to say I've heard that there was that there was escape routes all the way to Canada. I mean, not obviously not all the way directly from the south through, because there wasn't anything like that. But from like the northeastern states like New York. And those areas in like, you know, Massachusetts and areas like that, I think there was a part of the Underground Railroad that led into Canada. I'm pretty sure about it, but put a pin in that. I think that yeah. would be very interesting to research. I, in- I just feel like if I were in that situation and just the sheer fortitude that it would have taken to have gone through the Underground Railroad hmm. and knowing that if you're living in upstate New York, some dude can come from South Carolina and mm-hmm. cuff you and take you back. Mm-hmm. Why stop at upstate New York? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Why not go to Canada? Because now all of a sudden, if they are coming after you to take you back to South Carolina, you're in a different country and that's a whole new set of entanglements and legal mm-hmm. issues. It is. I just feel like, I would have more peace of mind if I was in Canada. I, I see what you're saying, but the, the, mm. without, I, I, yeah. <laughs> without going off the rails too much, there there was something there was something to that. And I, I think the more we talk about it, I think that I think this bodes well for us exploring sometime in the future, definitely. Yeah. I but, of course yeah. I have the advantage of looking at it from a 2022 lens, mm-hmm, not a 1807 lens, <laughs> you know, so. If I can, if I can pitch, you know, my pop culture moment in here, there is, uh, there was an excellent two season series um, that was on, I want to say it was WGN called Underground. Okay. Uh, that, um, that explored this pretty well. I think, and it was a shame that it got cut off after two seasons. Um, and it explored uh, the Underground Railroad, and they had an actress in there for one episode playing um, Harriet Tubman, and she was fantastic. I wish I wish they would have had her for the movie. I have not seen the movie Harriet yet, but um, excellent series. Um, and of course, like I said, there's the movie version Harriet, 
And then there's also a miniseries that Prime had a couple years ago. Oh, it's in a book called the Underground Railroad. And it was a little bit of fantasy because the Underground Railroad was an actual railroad in this in this book in the series. There was actually tracks and train cars. And yes, and it and the story focuses on um uh one particular woman and the um the man she escapes with, and I think they came out of Georgia. And um this is when they discover, you know, what the underground literal underground railroad literally looks like, but it, it surrounds her 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 attempts to journey to freedom, not just literally but figuratively as well. Awesome series. I mean, mm, it's 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 well done, and I, I recommend those very much. You know, not to get too far off track, but we were you know talking about something like that. Those are yeah, those no, are things no. worth looking at. So actually, mm. now that you mentioned that. People escaping slavery and going in the Underground Railroad would probably make a, fant- a fantastic anthology series where every year it's a whole new cast. <laughs> you know what I mean? It would, and you it, document it, from escape, like from escape to final destination, wherever it is they go, mm-hmm. and then you can have it to where people make it, and then they get you know recaptured and all of that. But each season you could have a whole new story. That way you could tell the story of multiple people <laughs> and make it well known. And you could also get that everybody's journey and destination through that was completely different and how much it had to have sucked. Definitely. And uh, not and that's that is a good idea, but I know that a lot of people in the in the African American community find watching those kinds of things traumatic. I I can understand why. Um, I understand why. And I think a lot of, of a lot of the community are clamoring for stories that do not focus on slavery. And even I though, also understand that. Right. Because <laughs> even though even though that's a good chunk of African American history in this country, obviously there's more there's more to our descendants than that. So I'm I'm of thrilled course. seeing yeah, I'm thrilled seeing some of the stuff coming up now. But I digressed. Right, too right. Long. I just sort of need more in a <laughs> A historical sense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do it as historically accurate as you can, and you can't understand from a modern lens how horrible and shitty that had to have been. Oh yeah, that's. I guess that's kind of why I was saying that because now mm-hmm. it just puts this lens on. Hey, it wasn't just like people having fun marching their way going. You know, yeah, it was no. traumatic, terrifying, mm-hmm. and horrible, <laughs> horrible. And let's and let's not forget that you know. The, the so-called occupation of slave catchery uh, led right. to, you know, is is a foundational piece of modern day law enforcement. But that's another episode that, yeah. altogether too. <laughs> that, that actually is an episode on. Uh, if you go to Behind the Bastard, he has it's like an eight part episode. Uh, maybe it's not quite that much, but it does talk about how modern police departments got their start from the mm-hmm. uh, the people that went and. We're tracking down slaves, so yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but mm-hmm. anyway, yeah, I think we've Indeed. I think we've gone off the rails. Obviously, this is an important part, if not an incredibly shitty and shameful part of American history. Indeed, but you can't Indeed. discuss American history and not discuss this, and you can't read the Constitution and not mention slavery. So yeah. Uh, anyway, I guess we should probably move on. <laughs> so session three of article four deals with expansion basically allowing for the creation of new states or bringing new states into the united states um of course it was necessary as at that time there was a westward westward expansion of many colonies and basically what this particular section summarizes is that if a new state formed from within the boundary of another state or states both Congress and state legislatures would have to approve the measure, basically saying, yeah, you're a state now, come on in. Um, the process has been largely followed with the formation of all the states in the country. However, and I don't have a backstory for this, maybe later we ought to, it was tenuously applied when West Virginia was formed from the existing state of Virginia in 1863. Oh, here we go. Here's some more details about it. So... And I'm reading from my source here. Um, Amid the Civil War, residents of the western mountainous region of Virginia petitioned Abraham Lincoln to form a separate state from Virginia. 
And part of their reason is that they were staunchly against slavery. And unfortunately, while the measure gained approval from what was left of Congress after the Confederate states seceded, it had no chance of getting approval from the Virginia legislature currently in rebellion. Because, you know, as we all know, Virginia was a part of the Confederacy. A hastily formed provisional, quote, Virginia state legislature was assembled in Wheeling, Virginia, which is now Wheeling, West Virginia. And it approved the formation of that particular state, technically fulfilling the requirements of the Constitution that both the state and Congress had to approve a measure to form a new state within its boundaries. Whether or not this fulfilled the requirements outlined in the clause is still a topic of debate. And I don't I don't doubt that, that it's still a topic of debate because everybody loves legislating things, you know, hundreds of years later. Well, it shouldn't have happened like that. But I mean, West Virginia. It's been around for ever. So I don't I don't <laughs> think they'll I don't think they'll cotton to be, you know, brought back in by Virginia. And I don't think they'll I don't think they'll like that. Not one bit. So yeah. Leave that yeah. let's leave that alone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's definitely a different situation than I guess all the other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so states. clause two of section three gives Congress the legislative power over any territory or other property owned by the United States with the right to pass laws and regulations for their governance. And Congress is also given the right to dispose of any territory or property owned by the United States. For example, if the U.S. had desired to sell the territory they purchased from Napoleon Bonaparte of France and the Louisiana Purchase to another foreign state, they had every right to do so. And let's remind our listening friends that we kind of sort of dabbled on the Louisiana Purchase back in our episode about Haiti, because Bonaparte only sold that piece of the stake he had here in the United States to fund his war to keep Haiti. So, yes, there's that. Uh, Section four requires Congress to guarantee every state in the country a Republican form of government. And both existing and newly formed states were protected from the takeover of potentially tyrannical government that would oppress their rights at the state level. It is important to note that Section 4 is a broad provision and that no specific guidelines are given about how Congress would accomplish this, implying that it is a responsibility of the individual states to formulate their government. On the other hand, Congress will play a more indirect role as simply verifying that the state government is indeed a Republican form of government, and then approving and admitting that particular state into the union. So basically, this piece of it guarantees the safety of the states from a foreign state, so to speak, or this last piece of it does. Mm -hmm. Um, Many New England colonies, Massachusetts in particular, found themselves in a state of war in 1775 with the battles of Lexington, Concord, and Bunker Hill. However, many of those colonies insisted that they were not at war with England, refusing to recognize the conflict in Massachusetts as a legitimate war shared by all the colonies. If the Union of 13 colonies, now states, were to survive in times of war, the federal government would have to unify and guarantee the safety of all of them. So basically it was like, if you come from one of us, you come from all of us, I guess. I'm curious Mm -hmm. I'm curious how that really holds up. Nowadays, it doesn't feel like it does, but what do I know? <laughs> I'm not a constitutional historian. <laughs> right. <laughs> the, the last bit of section four guarantees the safety of individual states from domestic violence upon the legislative branch's authority or the executive branch if the legislative branch cannot meet in time to defuse the situation. So that right. is Article 4 of the Constitution. So we're going to roll into five. Moving on to five. This Mm -hmm. one should be a little speedier. (laughs) Mm. And uh, I guess I will just, it's a paragraph, so I'll just read the paragraph. Article five. The Congress, whenever two thirds of both houses shall deem it necessary, shall propose amendments to this Constitution, or on the application of the legislature of two thirds of the several states, shall call a consti- a convention for proposing amendments, which, in either case, shall be valid to all intents and purposes as part of this Constitution when ratified by the legislatures of three-fourths of the several states, or 
by conventions in three-fourths thereof. As the one or the other mode of ratification may be proposed by the Congress, provided that no amendment which may be made prior to the year 1808 shall in any manner affect the first and fourth clauses in the ninth section of the first article, and no state without its consent shall be deprived of its equal suffrage in the Senate. That's it. That hurt my chest a little bit. <laughs> There's a lot of thereofs and <laughs> as in and shalls. <laughs> Indeed. In that, yeah. But that basically says that if the people want a constitutional amendment and Congress, I guess, doesn't, if enough states have a constitutional convention, they can, the people can get an amendment that they want without having to go through the federal legislature. Legislation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So. Indeed. So, yeah, it's interesting that something and supposedly that that particular article is in there because the founding fathers said, yeah, stuff is going to change down the line. So the people need to have a way to have the laws change up with the times. Of course, you know, as we've said before, they didn't see any of this coming, but yeah. <laughs> there was something in there saying, OK, guys. You know, if we have to do it, we got to leave it open for them to be able to do it. And here's the process by which they'll be able to do it, blah, blah, blah. So, right, right. And sort of as, as we have discussed before, there is this notion in the U.S. that certain things are constitutional and can't change it, i.e. Mm. the number of Supreme Court justices, the number of federal judges and districts. It's just a, it, that's, you can't change that. No, you can. Mm -hmm. If we wanted to add a thousand more district judges the legislature can pass a law and do that um now like i've also said you don't want all new thousand judges to happen at one time because you first of all don't have enough lawyers that are qualified to become a judge here's talking to you judge eileen cannon oh my <laughs> <laughs> we don't need a thousand of her so you do want it to be the th say thousand new judges to be spread out over ten years, but everybody has this feeling of, oh, you can't change that. That's just how the constitution. It's constitutional. It's how it works. No, they planned on changes being made when needed, and that's what this is. Yep, that's what it is. And it, like I said, it's interesting that that particular article is just that succinct and, and tidy in that one little paragraph, but it means yeah. a great deal as, as we have seen over the years since, um, since, I mean, the years since the constitution and then the original 10 amendments, which is the bill of rights, they all came at the same time. Right. So even, even as they were writing the constitution, they were like, eh, yeah, we're going to have to throw some, some extra stuff in here. So that's where they came with the bill of rights. And then since then, of course, we've had, 17 more right. in addition to that 17 more for a total of 27 amendments over the years so there's some there's some room in there and of course as we know there are some significant amendments in there some more that were kind of funny you know prohibition mm -hmm. but yeah. uh which is thankfully because of this system we were able to get rid of <laughs> yeah they found out that wasn't working too well <laughs> yeah let's let's the federal government create the you know the mafia Let's do that. <laughs> Once again, law of unintended consequences. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But what do we know? We're just we're just right. citizens of the earth. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. But yeah, not a whole lot to that one. I mean, there's really not. I don't. I can't think of anything more to talk about on that mm. amendment. <laughs> I mean, it's it's pretty much to the point. Hey, there it is. So there it is. So Article Six um, consists of three sections all of which collectively assert the supremacy of the Constitution in establishing laws and treaties. So, Article 6, here we go again, avoids any treasonous interpretation. So they thought, but as we all we as we known over the years, people have found many endless loopholes in every bit of this to be able to to bend this the meaning of this to their own their own needs, but I digress. So, yeah, and uh, there, there's a part as you read it there at the end that I think is very important. 
as some of the other stuff that we've mentioned in here. But I'm going to let you keep going until we get to that part. Yes. So in summary, Article 6 is just a way to cover all the bases in clarifying that no state or individual can come to a legal agreement that contradicts the privileges and laws laid out within the pages of the original U.S. Constitution. So, and this particular article also established, ta-da, freedom of religion. So, this particular article is in three sections, and we're going to get into those now. Hmm. All right. So, let's see. Article uh, 6, Section 1 is a formal notification that the United States government initially took the burden of debt upon itself. And it had accrued this debt before implementing the Constitution and the separate states coming together in unity. So, in doing so, the United States founding fathers garnered instant respect, according to some, for being known as a government that would take care of its own. And this initial way would set the tone for how our nation would handle debts for generations to come. Henceforth, again, in some people's opinion, the United States of America was known as a moral nation that handles responsibilities promptly and maturely. Sure. Sure. Okay. <laughs> Section two contains what is known as the supremacy clause, which is where the United States Constitution is deemed the supreme law of the land. And if you are a citizen of these United States, you will respect and abide the laws set forth within the said document. Hmm. Oh, here's one. Judges in Congress must also abide by the Constitution firmly, and no state law can contradict the Constitution or other federal laws subject to the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court. And state laws cannot violate treaty, uh, treaty agreements made with America, past or present. And the section also, uh, as summarized, declared that while states' governments do have the power to create their own laws when necessary, they cannot overlook or negate the supreme law of the land as outlined in the Constitution and upheld by the Supreme Court. Now, as you just mentioned a minute ago, Jack, here's uh, Section 3 in its original verbiage. The senators and rep representatives before mentioned and the members of the several state legislatures and all executive and judicial officers, both of the United States and of the several states, shall be bound by oath or affirmation to support this Constitution. But no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. Hmm. So when alumnus of the podcast Lauren Bobart hmm. is giving multiple speech saying that in her opinion... If you're going to run for office, you need to have taken a religious test. Maybe she should, you know, in her position as a representative, know that that's specifically mentioned and stated in the Constitution, that you can't do that. Mm-hmm. Yep. It, it is amazing that for a group of people that are political, you know, always talking about how much they love the Constitution, know nothing about what's in it. Mm -hmm. If you love something, you might know a little bit about them. You know what I mean? Yeah, you would think. You would think. But here and again, this is just an example of how as as good of a job that these these men did in their opinion, I suppose, of writing this up for laying the foundation of the federal government and then, of course, trickling down to how states should act. They couldn't think of everything. So, again, right. there's there's always going to be someone, especially in like in the case of, you know, Ms. Bobart, that wants to either be ignorant about it or know exactly what it says and choosing to interpret it for their own means and gains. Right, right. And we've seen it, you know, it's not like we haven't always seen it at some point during and, this country's history, but we're seeing yeah. it so much more often in these last, I'll say, decade or so. Right. And to be clear, earlier we did talk about there should be some sort of test to run for office, mm -hmm. but we specifically did not mention a religious test. We are talking about a test that shows that you know enough about our government and the way it operates that you should you're cool to go and do that job because if you know jack shit about the government maybe you shouldn't run for office <laughs> if from what i understand if you're applying for citizenship 
in this country. Maybe you're a natural citizen of another country and you come here and you want to become a legal citizen of the United States. Part of the test you have to take for that includes bit bits of the Constitution. Like, what does this yeah. say? What does this mean? How come it's necessary for them to know that? But someone born and raised in this country who expects to represent other people don't know that. Yeah, that's bizarre and it's backwards. And, and and we're not doing anybody any favors by continuing to put people like that in office. It's right. For for example, if you took a test on how the U.S. government works and you're unaware that you can't have a specific religious test, you might not pass that test because you don't know enough about the Constitution. Mm hmm. And then maybe you learn enough about it and then you do run in the next election and you could make a more competent member of Congress. Mm -hmm. But, you know, apparently these are pipe dreams. So we'll just yes. we'll keep our fingers crossed and, and keep on wishing, hoping and praying. Hello. Indeed. So that in a nutshell is Article 6, basically. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And I guess we can move on to the most exciting amendment. Indeed. Now, or amendment, part of the Constitution, Article 7, which is basically about the ratification of the Constitution. Mm -hmm. And I don't think really has that much bearing on the rest of the world or the U.S. after that. But mm -hmm. uh, here it is. The ratification of the conventions of nine states shall be significant for the establishment of this Constitution between the states so ratifying the same. So don't boom. Done in convention by unanimous consent of the states present the 17th day of September in the year of our Lord, 1787, and the independence of the United States of America, the 12th. In witness thereof, we have hereunto subscribed the names. And then it's the names of the people from the various states that were there, including... Mm -hmm. America's probably, even though he's not thought that way because he was the founding father and the first president, but I guarantee you during the Revolutionary War, he was probably treasonous person number one that the British crown wanted to get. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Indeed. But, you know, quibbles, you know, what, what were they worried about, really? Right. <laughs> really. But it includes, you know, I, I, I find it interesting to go through the names and of who signed off on this, you know, Ben Franklin and uh, Alexander Hamilton, who was the star of that fabulous Broadway stage play some years ago. Um, yes. <laughs> and then guys, I've, you, I, then guys, I honestly don't think I've ever heard of in history again. And probably because I'm not a history buff, but honestly, some of these other names, I'm just like, who? Like Charles Coatsworth Pickney. Definitely. Right. Definitely. He's coming from some, some, some notable family somewhere. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. I, yeah, they I, weren't they weren't people that came from you know the ghetto. True. <laughs> back in the day, going to this constitution, you you definitely came from uh, the moneyed class. The moneyed and, and notable uh, segment of the populations in each state. So yeah, yeah. Pretty much, the guys were like, "Hey, uh, we wrote all this now. We agreed to it. We're signing off on it. There it is. Boom. Go forth and be great. Woo woo." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh man. So yeah. there it is. And honestly, if they would not have come and did this new form of government, the world and the United States would not exist as it does today because the US probably would have fallen apart under the Articles of Confederation. And I mean, let's be honest, the US was a incredibly large part of the ending of World War II and the stopping of fascism in Europe. And this belief that a lot of, you know, major conservatives had that had the U.S., that we did all of everything in World War II, that is not true. <laughs> England was a significant part of it. And even people in countries that were taken over by the Nazis were a significant part of it. Um, but the world would definitely be a different place had they not come and put this form of government in because the U.S. would have fallen apart under the Articles of Confederation. So, yeah. Indeed. So there it is, guys. Our breakdown of that fabulously well-known document, the Constitution of the United States. Will will. Yeah. And we go into it because it's important. Obviously, as Jack just said, it's important to know these things, especially in the world of politics and, and all the, the mudslinging and, and dusting up that's been going on. 
in these last few years, it's necessary to know. It's necessary to know what it should be as opposed to what we're looking at now. Right, right. So, and it, it's just one of those things that everybody talks about. Well, this is constitutional. This isn't. And it's nice to go back to the source and say, well, is it really constitutional? What does the Constitution say? How mm-hmm. did the amendments change this portion of the original document? We understand we're not doing the amendments today. But it's still important to know. And at Thanksgiving, when, you know, Uncle Buford is <laughs> praising Orange Jesus and saying the Constitution says this, you might now be able to say, well, you know what? Actually, this is what the Constitution says. And let's go pull this up <laughs> because now you kind of can realize in your head, oh, hey, that's wrong. <laughs> so that is there not you go. what that said at all. But you know, again, what do we know? We're just we're just common citizens that are very concerned about you know what we're looking at here. So we want to inform ourselves, and in turn, we want to inform you guys, our listening friends. Yeah. So yeah. we appreciate that's what we do. listening. Indeed, indeed, it was interesting. You know, going back into this and reading up on this, you know, how it's summarized and the details on it and the verbiage that they use. Yeah. So, yeah. Hmm. and just for kicks, because I'm one of these people, I had to find out some uh, one particular fact that has absolutely no bearing on anything whatsoever. So I did my own little bootleg analysis. And apparently the word shall appears in the Constitution 191 times. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I mean, that would make sense. And just, I just, I was thinking, of, I would love for somebody to rewrite the Constitution in the vernacular of Gen Z. That would be hot. That would be. <laughs> you know, if you're a legislator and you do something sus. <laughs> like, dude, like, really? Like, you can't do that. Like, you really can't do that. Yeah. And. Another thing I thought about as we were talking, uh, what was it earlier that, oh, you know, the states can't write laws that supersede the Constitution. Mm -hmm. Well, this is, you think on the surface, well, a lot of states have, you know, legalized recreational marijuana or medicinal and marijuana is banned federally. Um, This is sort of where where that Mm -hmm. part comes through, that um, the way that it's banned and the law written about it actually left leeway for states to do that yeah i'm not going to go into that the whole verbiage of all of that but actually that is would make for an interesting uh podcast is how it was uh made illegal and um if you are unaware spoiler alert racism ding 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 You know, at least when they were getting rid of alcohol, that was just a general, if you're doing alcohol, you're, you're morally corrupt for everybody. <laughs> mm, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's, that's the only thing that does it. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> you know, that was at least a general one, but marijuana was 100% racist. <laughs> Pretty much. I imagine if at the federal level, they could find a way to profit as much as possible. There would be absolutely no no issue whatsoever with legalizing at a federal level, but they haven't figured out how to do that, right. and and not and not look contradictory or hypocritical or have mud on their face. Yeah. I'm sure some I'm sure someone somewhere in an unmarked office with no bugs is discussing this. Yeah, because if if there's one thing that I have learned in the past six years or so that if something people that are going to buy marijuana do not care what the tax rate is on said marijuana because right. as soon as you legalize it, I have yet to see a state with recreational marijuana where the people buying it are complaining about the tax rate on the marijuana. Correct. Correct. <laughs> so. This is this, this is ridiculous. I'm I'm reporting you to the Better Business Bureau, really. You, yeah. Really. So I mean okay. <laughs> the federal government that you know what? Let's legalize marijuana at the federal level, hmm. put the tax on it, and then the tax has to go to just paying off the debt. Hey, conservatives, you're always complaining about the debt. Here's a way to get it paid down relatively quick. Because okay. pot smokers will get that debt paid down in like five years. Pretty much. If I mean, if it takes that long, really. <laughs> they'll, they'll be able to refund um, um, Social Security. You know what I'm saying? Like generations... For at least the next <laughs> exactly. 50 years will be taken care of. 
There, there will be a budget alone. surplus in 10 women. years. Women. <laughs> Social look, Security fully funded. <laughs> look, guys, we're going to go ahead and throw this to the infrastructure. Look at all your new roads and bridges and railroads and shit. Look at this. Thank God for the weed smokers. Amen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Telling you, they can get away with it. Somebody's having that discussion as we speak. I know they are. I know it. So Yeah. Anyway, um, we appreciate our listening you are listening friends listening hopefully you did learn a thing or two mm-hmm. as we went over this constitution the last couple episodes and i guess we're gonna wrap it up because we're just gonna end up going off on some side quest talking about marijuana and alcohol apparently so good <laughs> lord we're not those kinds of people here we don't we don't know no, neither one that. of us have ever had a sip of alcohol in the entirety of our existence ever. And that other thing we're not going to, I don't even know anybody that I only recently learned about marijuana, like two weeks ago, literally, literally like we just have no idea how these things work. And with that listening friends, we're going to go ahead and sign off. Lest we get electrocuted through our microphones. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So anyway, thanks for listening guys. We appreciate it. Bye. Bye. As always, thank you for listening to our podcast. If you're enjoying the show, hit that like button and subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. Let us hear your feedback. You can find us on our website, podpage.com slash kenyatta-jack-save-the-world. On Instagram at K-A-Y-A-N-D-J-A-Y-S-T-W. On Facebook or you can email us at k.j.savetheworld at gmail.com. You can also find further information about our chosen charities at Service Dog Project at servicedogproject.org and Black Women's Health Initiative at bwhi.org. And because we always want you to be good to yourselves and others, if you or anyone you know needs help or support, please check out the resources provided by the American Psychological Association at apa.org slash topics slash crisis dash topics. and Jack, Save the World is a production of Hyper Focus Podcasts.